Welcome to the Celebration Church Podcast. We are so glad you've joined us, and we hope you are encouraged by today's message. Church, how you guys doing? Is there anybody that's happy to be in the house of God today? Is there anybody here that believes that Jesus has risen? All right, that's something, that's something worth celebrating all in itself. My name is Keith. I'm one of the pastors here at Celebration Church. And, and, and Pastor, Layton, um, Pastor Jason had already alluded to it, but on behalf of Pastor Stovall and Pastor Kerry, we're so grateful and glad um, that you guys are here worshiping with us. Um, as a family, can we welcome all of those who are joining us online as well as at our Julington Creek and Orange Park campuses? Thank you guys so much. For, for, for worshiping with us, man. I'm really excited to, to be with you guys today. But before I get into that, I just got to take a quick second to, to honor our incredible, our incredible pastors. Man, maybe you guys been coming for a while and maybe you've heard a lot of different speakers come up and talk about how great our, our, our pastors are with Pastor Stovall and Pastor Kerry. But just for a moment, I, I want to be selfish as I talk about them. I hope that's okay with you. If it's not, doesn't matter. I got the mic. I do what I want to do. Anyway, so, so I want to talk about them for a moment. The reason why I want to talk about them is because they started this church almost two decades ago, and as a result of the vision and the heart that God has given them, countless, I mean literally countless people have met and engaged Jesus and have radically changed the rest of their lives. Not only that, but their families' lives and their internal destinations. And when, and when I think about my part that I get a chance to play, in the, in the lineage and in the legacy of Celebration Church and knowing that in spite of myself, in spite of my struggles, I've still been invited to play a part in whatever it is that God wants to do here at Celebration Church. It just shows that we have visionary leaders that want to make sure that other people and whatever giftings they have, it can be activated in the house of God. And, and that may mean for you, that may mean getting involved in serve day, that may mean getting engaged in the growth track, but I love that we have pastors that have a big enough vision that it gives opportunities for people like us with our flaws to make a difference and it helps someone meet Jesus. Jesus. So can we put our hands together for our incredible pastors with such great vision? Amen. 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 I'm really excited to, to share what, what God has put on my heart. If you, if you have your Bibles, I want to invite you to, to join me in 2 Samuel, the ninth chapter. 2 Samuel chapter 9. We're going to be reading from verses 1 through 13. Um, as you're turning there, if you don't have your Bible, that's okay. It'll come up on the screen in, in just a moment behind me. But as you're turning there, I want to give you some context as to what's going on um, so that way we have a little bit of clarity. Um, we, we realize that in, 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 second, in 1 Samuel 20, we see that we're introduced to this character, David, and he has a phenomenal relationship with Jonathan. Jonathan is Saul's son. So Saul was the first king of Israel, and he had a son named Jonathan. David and Jonathan became best friends. Ultimately, they became like brothers. And because it was times of war and at any given moment someone could die, they made a covenant with one another. And they said, listen, if anything ever is to happen to me, will you take care of my family? And then on the other side of it, if anything ever happens to you, I will take care of your family. They made this covenant. They made this arrangement that they will hold each other down. They will look out for each other in the event that anything had ever happened. Well, Unfortunately, we, we see that the, the series of events that take place that, that both Saul and Jonathan, his son, die. And so now David is installed as king. And now that he's king, he's reminded by the promise and the covenant that he made with his best friend Jonathan. And this is where we pick up our story here in, in 2 Samuel chapter 9. The Bible says this. It says, one day David asked, is there anyone in Saul's family still alive, anyone to whom I could show kindness for Jonathan's sake? He summoned a man named Ziba, who had been one of Saul's servants. Are you Ziba? The king asked. Yes, sir, I am Ziba, he replied. The king asked him, is anyone still alive from Saul's family? If so, I want to show God's kindness to them. 
Zeba replied, yes, one of Jonathan's sons is still alive. He's crippled in both feet. Where is he? The king asked. And Lodabar, Zeba told him, at the home of Makar, son of Amiel. So David sent for him and brought him from Makar's home. His name was Mephibosheth. I want to stop there just for just a moment because Mephibosheth, that's a mouthful. So going forward, I'm going to refer to him as my main man, Meph. That's kind of how I'm going to refer to him because I know I said I'm reading from the NLT, but I'm actually reading from the, the BLT, which is the Black Living Translation. So in my translation, my, Mephibosheth is called my main man, Meph. So in chapter 5, it says that his name was my main man, Meph. And so Jonathan's son, um, Saul's grandson, he came to David and he bowed loud to the ground in deep respect. And David said, greetings, my main man, Meph. Meph replied, I am your servant. Don't be afraid, David said. I intend to show kindness because of the promise that I made to your father, Jonathan. I will give you the property that once belonged to your grandfather, Saul, and you will eat here with me at the king's table. My main man, Meph, bowed respectfully and exclaimed, who is your servant that you would show such kindness to a dead dog like me? Then the king summoned Saul's servant, Ziba, and said, I have given your master's grandson everything that belonged to Saul and his family. Your sons and your servants are to farm the land for him, to produce food for your master's household. But my main man, Meph, your master's grandson, he's going to eat here at the table with me. Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. Ziba replied, yes, my lord, I am your servant. I will do all that you've commanded me. And from that time on, my main man, Meph, ate regularly at David's table like he was one of the king's own sons. So Meph, he had a young son named Micah. From then on, all the members of Ziba's households were Meph's servants. Verse 13. And my main man, Meph, he was crippled in both feet. He lived in Jerusalem and ate regularly at the king's table. It's such a powerful scripture that sometimes it doesn't even require me to preach it. But I got 24 minutes, so I'm going to preach it anyway. So if, you, if, you, if you're taking notes, which I want to encourage you to do, I, I really feel compelled to talk to you guys about the magnitude and the endlessness of God's grace. And I've entitled this message, There's a Place for You. Will you pray with me as we see what it is that the Holy Spirit wants to do in here today? Heavenly Father, God, we thank you so much, Lord, for your word. We thank you for the environment that you've established where we can gather freely, God, and experience your truth. Lord, I, I pray over the next few moments, God, that we have open eyes that we can see you, God, maybe in areas where we've lost perspective, lost vision a little bit, Lord. Father, I pray for open ears that we can hear your voice, even in those areas where maybe we're crowded out by, by despair and distress. But Father, I pray we can zone in and hear what it is that your voice has to say to us, God. But Lord, I also pray for open hearts, maybe in areas where we've grown callous as God, maybe where there's bitterness and frustration, Father. But Lord, I pray that you penetrate all of that and deposit your truth into our hearts and into our spirits so we can experience who you are. I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. You know, as I already had referenced, I'm, I'm always blown away at the opportunities that, that I find myself in. And even being able to, to stand on this platform right now and, and, and declare the gospel. Like for me, it's, it's mind-blowing the position that God has placed me in when I, when I think about the fact that, that God has orchestrated my life and allowed me to be in a place where I get a chance to lead the student ministries department at what I consider to be the best church on the planet. I have an opportunity to serve in a riot. I have an opportunity to serve in sub-30. I have an opportunity to, to preach to countless thousands, even in environments like today. So for a person like me, what I typically like to do, I have these moments where I reflect on where I am, but I always think about how did I get here? Because a lot of times we can often see the end result or where someone is at a season, but we don't quite understand the process that it took for them to get there. 
But the reason why I often reflect on it is because it also helps me to be grateful for the journey and it helps me to identify the grace of God even in moments when I didn't think and didn't know that it was there. And interestingly enough, as I reflect on my journey, as I reflect on the path that God has had me on, it takes me all the way back to when I was four years old, which brings me to a side point. You know, a lot of times when we look at the youth, when we look at the students, in other environments, a lot of times we think that maybe their pain isn't significant enough that it doesn't need a platform because it doesn't seem as if it has enough impact on our lives. But I can tell you, the most impactful thing that happened in my life happened when I was four years old. And I'm grateful to be part of a church that recognizes and acknowledges what can happen in the student's life changes the way that they see things. So I'm glad that we have a church where we can instill the hope of who God is, even in those young seasons. So as they grow up, it allows them to see faith in spite of looking at a world through the lens of pain. You see, when I was four years old, my biological father had walked out of my life. Now, you have to understand, back in those days, uh, the divorce rate wasn't quite what it is now. It wasn't as common. So I was the only family in my entire neighborhood to experience divorce. I was the only kid in my school to experience divorce and, and seeing my mom struggle. And I couldn't quite understand it. Naturally, I'm only four years old. But as I, as I watched my mom in this emotional place, watching my father walk away and not really having any clarity, I, I didn't know anything else to do but to cling to my mom. Well, understandably, as I began to understand the weight of what it meant to be in a fatherless home, I, I found myself beginning to develop a lot of anger and frustrations. When I looked and saw a lot of my friends, they had their, they had their dad with them at their outings. They would often do trips and things along those lines, but I, I just didn't have access to that. Maybe my uncles would do it on time to time if they could. But before my stepfather came into my life, I just didn't have any of that stuff. So I remember having all of this bottled up frustration and anger and trying to figure out a way to, to channel it because I knew even then that something inside of me told me I don't want this to control me. So when I was about 12 years old, I began to take all this anger and frustrations and I began to write these letters. And so initially I was writing these letters to my dad and, and the letters would often start off with like, hey dad, I miss you. After several months, those, those letters turned into, hey dad, where are you? After several more months, it turned into, hey, dad, I don't care where you are. I don't miss you. I don't ever hope that I ever see you. See, there was this de-evolution of my words because the more and more that I felt rejection, there was a higher level of anger that it caused me to lash out even at a deeper level. Well, when I went back and began to read some of these letters, I began to recognize patterns that I didn't even know existed. I began to recognize this, this rhythm, so to speak, these, these, these patterns that began to echo. And I noticed that it expressed itself in the form of poetry because of the, the way that it was written. So now these letters had turned into poetry. And it was some dark stuff. I mean, some really dark stuff. I mean, Edgar Allan Poe would have read my stuff and be like, hey, man, you sure you want to put this out there? Like, it was, it was some dark, dark stuff. But nonetheless, I'm writing these angry poems and I'm writing this stuff that is so, just so, just so inundated with frustration and rejection. Well, I was born in 1975. I know looking at me, you would never guess that, black don't crack. But anyway, I was born in 1975. So because I was born in 1975, I was strongly influenced by the culture of 1975. And then you get into the 80s and that's when the rap culture had really began to take a lot of structure. And so for me, I grew a lot of influence from that. I, I grew a lot of influence from watching Run DMC and LL Cool J. Like that was the things that really had inspired me. So because I had already started these, writing these angry poems, it was only natural that I was going to evolve into writing angry raps because I was inspired by that as a part of my culture. So now I started writing all of these angry raps. 
And you have to understand that for me, I got to be very good at expressing my anger because what I would do, I would channel my frustration in this way. I would often envision that my dad was my opponent, so I would write some of the most vicious and harsh things you can imagine because I would imagine me battling him. I'm not sure if you've ever seen 8 Mile, but Eminem got nothing on the stuff that I used to say about my dad. He had nothing on it. I would just tear him apart in my mind because that was the way that I would express myself. Well, I remember one time as I was working through all of this, because again, being a rapper wasn't something that was common. That wasn't something that you did back in the, the late 80s, early 90s. That wasn't something that everyone did. So for me, I was just working through all these rhythms. And so I remember being in my room one day and I was just kind of working through what my cadence would be. I was kind of channeling my inner LL Cool J. I got my little brush in front of the mirror and I'm, I'm bobbing back and forth. And my brother comes in my room and he looks at me. And he's like, dude, like, what are you doing? And I, I didn't have anything to say. I was like, hey man, you know, I was, um, I was just brushing my beard. He's like, dude, do you rap with it? I'm like, yeah, man, like, but don't tell anybody. He said, listen, I'm your brother. I love you. I would never betray you in such a way of telling your deepest, darkest secret. You're safe with me. That was on a Tuesday. I still remember it. That was on a Tuesday. That Friday, we had a school dance. I was a freshman at the time, and my brother was a senior. And so here I am at the school dance with my brother hanging out with the big guys, but I was kind of just hanging out in the background because I didn't know anybody, but I was able to be included because I was part of the right crowd. But at the end of the night, as the night was about to come to a close, like the, the lights would come on and the DJ would make like a final statement. It was kind of like the school's version of last call without the alcohol. So, so the lights come up and the DJ gets on the mic. He says, hey, can I have Keith Pittman come up to the DJ booth? So for me, again, I'm so naive. I'm thinking it's all good because I haven't been around my brother for the past couple of hours, so I'm thinking they're summoning me to the DJ booth like a lost kid at Walmart, like, hey, little Johnny, come up front. Your parents are up here. We're going we're gonna to reconnect you. So I walk up to the DJ booth expecting to be reunited with my brothers and his friends, and we're going to leave and, and go and get some Wendy's. That was, our, that was the typical thing that we typically would do. But this day was different. The DJ hands me the microphone and says, hey, your brother told me that you rap, man. You got 30 seconds. Go for it. So immediately I'm thinking of everything that my brother had promised me and thinking to myself, like, dude, you got to sleep. I'm going to get you. But now here I am with a microphone in my hand. I'm, I'm standing and all eyes are on me. So I begin to say one word and one word needs to another word and that leads to a sentence and that sentence leads to a statement. And next thing you know, all these words come out of me and I mean, I'm just going for it. At the end of it, man, the crowd was going crazy. Man, I got so much love. I was like, man, this is, this is something I feel like I was meant to do. So that Friday, I went home and I was on cloud nine. I go back to school on that Monday and I ordinarily had a very direct route in how I went to my classroom. But now everybody recognized me. Everybody knew me. They knew who I was. I was getting a whole lot of respect. So I, I, I changed the way that I walked in school that Monday. See, I mean, maybe some of you guys may have seen me around the church. I'm like, man, who is that cool guy walking around like that? I want to let you know that back when I was a ninth grader, that was the birth of my swag. My, I began to walk a little bit differently. I had a different confidence. I had my chest out. I had my head up. I would nod at people. Hey, was you at the party on Friday? Yeah, that was me. You know what it is, man. So it was all good. I was, getting a, I was getting a lot of love. It was all good, man. People knew who I was, and, and, and it was great. For the rest of my time in high school, man, I was incredibly popular, very well-liked, man. It was, it was really all good. I went on to take that, that gift of me being able to express myself and be in front of people, and, and I went on to make music. I went on to continue to express and get better at my craft. And then even after I left the music industry, I began to find myself in jobs or in positions where it seemed as if I always went in a place where I was always in front of people, communicating of some sort, always in a place where I was doing trainings or talking, or even now being on this platform and preaching. 
And, and when I think about all of that, when I put it all together, it's often easy for us to, to look at the journey that someone has taken. But for me, I think about the fact that it all originated when I was a four-year-old and I was dealing with, with being rejected and watching my father walk out of my life. It all started back then. And what I want you to know, and this is the single point that I have for this message, your past doesn't define you, it develops you. Your past doesn't define you, it develops you. Everything that happened in my past was a catalyst for what got me to the place where God has me today. I don't know what has happened in your past, and maybe the enemy is trying to convince you that as a result of that, that there is nothing that God can do with your life, but I wanna let you know that nothing is wasted as long as grace is involved. Nothing is lost when grace gets involved. And when I think about, when I think about my main man, Meth, I look at his journey and I find myself drawing parallels to his journey. You see, 2 Samuel chapter 4 tells us that in one day, in one single event, that he, he endured a catastrophic scenario. What happened with him was his dad died and his grandfather died in one moment. So here he is, a young man, a young boy, lost his grandfather, lost his father. He was being taken care of by a nurse. And what the Bible tells us is that in the haste of trying to make sure that he didn't die as the overflow of that war, that the woman who was taking care of him picked him up and she dropped him. And that is what resulted in being paralyzed from the waist down. I, I find myself thinking about, it's interesting what can happen to us when we're dropped into situations. It's interesting how we can sustain damage that limits our mobility maybe when we're dropped into a broken home, we're dropped into a divorce, we're dropped into unemployment, and it seems to limit our ability to ever adequately move forward. My main man, Mef, was, was dropped into this situation that limited his ability to move forward, and what it really does is it just reveals to us just how fragile life can be. It's, it's kind of like when we drop a glass in the kitchen and the glass shatters and it goes all over the place and we try to sweep it up to the best of our ability only to find out that one day when we're walking in our kitchen unexpectedly at three o'clock in the morning, we step on a random shard that we thought we had already cleaned up and you're thinking to yourself, I, I thought I cleaned this all up. I thought all the brokenness had been taken care of, but somehow we find ourselves still stepping in the pain. And when that happens to us, it changes the way that we walk around things. I, I assure you, it changes the way that you walk around your relationships when you know that you've been backstabbed before. It changes the way that you walk around trusting people when you know that you've been betrayed. I'm, I'm reminded of a time when I gave my son an iPhone, the first time I gave him his iPhone. Now, I realize that it probably wasn't the smartest idea to give a 10-year-old an iPhone, but I'm not gonna deal with your judgment. God freed me from that. But I gave my 10-year-old son an iPhone several years ago. And when I gave him the iPhone, I gave him some instructions on how we should manage it, and it was all good. I said, listen, man, you gotta take care of it. And so he, he, he did his part for the, for the most part, but I remember one day we went to go and get something to eat, and he jumped out of the car, and as he jumped out of the car, the phone that was on his lap fell off of his lap, and it began to slowly descend to the ground. You see, it, for me, I mean, I'm gonna be transparent for a moment. Um, when I look at my kids, I love them with all my heart. So they're probably watching online, I love you guys. But when I see them, all I see is the dollar signs of what they cost me. That's all I see. When, when, when Keith Jr. comes in, how much is it gonna cost me? When my daughter Daenera comes in, what is this gonna cost me? So when I saw the phone falling, I just saw dollar signs in my bank account decreasing with every rotation of the phone. So it hits the ground, and, and I'm looking at the phone, and my family looks at me, they look at my phone, then they look at Caleb. They're like, man, good luck. I pick the phone up, and I look at it, and I see that the screen is completely shattered. 
And I'm thinking to myself, like, man, this phone has fallen down the steps. I've stepped on this phone by accident. It was been, it's been left in the car. I think I even ran it over once, and yet it never broke. But now it fell two feet from his lap to the ground, and that's the thing that caused it to shatter. What it makes me think about is amazing the things that we're able to survive to only fall apart what seems to be the smallest little things. It's interesting how a person can survive cancer but then fall apart when they lose their job because it's a buildup of a lot of different things that has been going on. And so as a result of that, we seem to fall apart at what appears to be the smallest things. I told my son, I said, listen, man, we got to take it to the shop. I got I to gotta get it fixed. And initially, he was very reluctant because he knew that he would have to be without his phone for a couple of days. And he's like, well, Dad, I can keep using it until you take it to the shop. I said, no, son, because I don't want you to hurt yourself any further. But in addition to that, I just don't want you to get used to navigating through a lens of brokenness until it becomes your normal. I believe that there's times that we hold on to our brokenness until it becomes our normal and it becomes the filter that we look through and we stop trying to get it into the hands of Jesus. We learn how to limp really well and after a while it just becomes a part of our walk. We, we learn to deal with suffering really well until it just becomes a part of our normal. But I said, I, I don't want you to, to get used to looking through the lens of brokenness so we have to put it in the hands of the people that can repair it. But when we took it to the shop, they not only fixed it, but they gave me a life-proof case. Thank God for the life proof case. Thank God for it, because now what the life-proof case does, it's built in a way so that it can handle falling. It's built in a way that it can handle being submerged in water. It's built in a way that it can often be used as a bulletproof vest. The life-proof case is awesome, but here's the thing. It's a life-proof case, which means it doesn't keep you from falling. It just keeps it from falling apart. Ooh, can I let you know that grace is our life-proof case? It may not keep you from falling, but it will keep you from falling apart. Can I let you know that grace has got you covered? I don't know what your next fall may be, but can I let you know that grace has got you covered? You may be struggling with addiction, but grace has got you covered. You may not even be doing that well in your marriage, but grace has got you covered. Your money may be funny right now, but grace has got you covered. I want to make sure you understand there is nothing that you will face that grace does not have you covered in. The grace of God has got you covered. You see, my, my main man, Meth, he was, he, was, he was broken and he was found in this place, in, in a place where he was in complete isolation. When David is reminded about that, he says, man, I, I want to spend some time with this guy. So he sends for Ziba. Now, you have to understand something about Ziba. Ziba is a very interesting character because he used to serve the previous king. So from the time that the previous king died, he was living in one of his mansions. He was living it up right now. So the idea that my main man, Meph, would come back. He knew it would result in him having to move out and get back to serving. Understand this. So he, he, he didn't have any interest in Meph ever claiming what was, should have been his. So when David asked Ziba, where, is there anyone alive? And if so, where is he? He said, yeah, man, there's a guy that's still alive, but he's lame in both feet or he's broken. See, the name Ziba means statue or monument. I wonder if we have statues or monuments that seem to serve no purpose except to point out our brokenness and our failures. I wonder if there's things in our lives that have erected themselves in our hearts to be monuments that seem to do nothing but remind us of our brokenness. Sometimes we can scroll through social media and while it's meant to inform us of some good information, but I know for a person that has gotten an abortion in their past, when they see someone with a pregnant belly, the voice of Ziba begins to speak to them and tell them why they're never fit to worthy to be a parent. I, I can imagine that there's people in their lives that have experienced divorce and maybe brokenness as a result of some of their bad decision making, but I want to 
let you know that the voice of Ziba then comes in to say that you're never fit to be a husband. You're never fit to be a wife because of the mistakes that you made in your past. But I have on good authority the word of God that I feel like I was sent here to encourage somebody in what the Bible tells me in Romans the eighth chapter where it says that there is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. I don't know what's in your past, but I can tell you that you do have a future. Second Corinthians tells me that when I'm in Christ Jesus, that behold, all things are old and everything becomes new. I don't know what it is that the voice of Ziba in your life is trying to tell you that you're unfit to move forward, but it's time for us to take a single step forward and to accomplish and do what it is that God has called us to do. Your past is your present as long as you're at a standstill. But if you're willing to take a step in the direction of God and walk by faith and not by sight and not be paralyzed by the things in your life that tells you you're not good enough and that you're not adequate, we can begin to walk in freedom. I'm so grateful that I'm not here because of my resume. My resume is not that impressive. I had a son out of wedlock. I dropped out of college. I felt rejected as a child. But somehow God's grace got involved and he said that in spite of all of that, I'm going to use your brokenness. In spite of all of that, I'm going to get you back in school. In spite of all of that, I'm going to put you on a platform to speak to the next generation to let them know that they have hope. All you got to do is walk by faith. I don't know what the future holds, but I do know who holds the future. And then as my risen Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, I'm going to keep walking this thing out. Do I have anybody in the house today that is willing to walk by faith and not by what they see? That's willing to celebrate this finished work of Christ and not allow the adversary to keep you in prison to your past anymore. It's time for us to silence the voices and recognize what it is that Jesus has done for us. We got we to walk this thing out. We got to walk this thing out and not allow ourselves to be paralyzed any further. You see, when, when David inquired about my main man, Meth, Ziba's like, yeah, man, he, he's broken. And David's like, I didn't, I didn't ask you about all that, man. Where, where is he? He said he's in Lodabar. It's interesting how Ziba knew exactly where the broken man was, but did nothing to bring him any hope or restoration. I, I think that religion functions that way really well. We can point to where the brokenness is, but we don't do anything to bring it into a place of wholeness. But nonetheless, David said, now that I know that he's in Lodabar, which is a place of no hope, no refuge, no growth, this, this, this child was dropped, broken, and found refuge in a place where there was no hope no refuge, no potential of growth. That is where he found himself living. And many of you may be in that place right now, a place of hopelessness. But when David found out where he was, the Bible tells us that he sent a messenger. He sent a message to retrieve him from the place of hopelessness and brokenness and bring him into the presence of the king. I don't know if you caught that. I'm gonna say it again. He sent a message to retrieve him from the place of brokenness and rejection and invite him into the place where the king is. Can I let you know that God has a message for you right now? And he's sending a message to you that no matter where you are, no matter where your place of brokenness is, that you cannot escape the message of grace. You cannot escape the love of God. You can't escape what it is that God has for you. He has a message for you. I remember several years ago, I got into a, a car accident and it left me in a place where I wasn't able to work for about a year. So understandably, when you're not able to work for about a year and, and, and we needed both my wife and I's income, you can imagine that there was some financial struggles as a result of that. I mean, we were doing our best just to keep the lights on. We're doing our best just to survive day to day. So I would get letters and phone calls obviously telling me that, hey, man, you're behind on your bills. You need to get caught up. And then you just get to a place where it's like, man, I can't even handle this anymore. So you just stop even looking at it. You stop even opening the letters. You just kind of put them to the side. Now, listen, that's before I had Dave Ramsey. That's not the best way to do it. Don't judge me. I moved on. I got freedom. But back then, but back then, 
I was like, man, I don't even got the energy to open up these letters. I don't even want to hear another person threatening me about something they're going to do. I just need to keep the lights on, forget all that. So that was kind of like my posture. Well, eventually one month went by, a second month went by, and I had this one letter that I had ignored for several months. Well, I had finally gotten to a place where I was like, well, let me at least assess where I'm at. Let me see what all these are. So I'm going through one bill after another, and I get to this one envelope that had made itself to the bottom of the pile. But when I opened it up, I began to read it. Now, when you owe people money, you could typically tell the tone of their respect for you by how they open up the letter. Y'all know what I'm saying? Maybe not this section. Y'all must be the rich section, but I'm going to talk to the poor college students over here. Anybody ever owe anybody some money, and they're like, yo, when am I going to get paid? This is what my letter looked like. It was like, so when I opened the letter up, it said, hey, dear Mr. Pittman. I'm like, wow, they called me Mr. That means this must be a good letter. It said, we have been trying to reach you for quite some time. We haven't been able to, so we just went ahead and wanted to send you this check. Now, you have to understand, for me, every other word on that page ceased to exist, and all I saw in all caps was the word check in bold. And I begin to say, okay, I don't care. Nothing else that you got to say, show me the money. Show me the money. And so as I'm looking for it, I mean, y'all know how it is when y'all have those birthday, um, birthday cards that come in. You're like, okay, it's cool, man, but show, show me the gift card. Anyway, so I'm like, man, show me, show me the money. And so I open up the check, and it's for $5,000. $5,000. Now listen, I've been in church my whole life, and I've often heard people say like, hey, I started to give, and I got a check I wasn't expecting. I'm like, how do you get a check you're not expecting? I expect all oh, my streams are going to come. I know exactly what I should be expecting. I check my direct deposit every single two weeks. So I don't know how you can get a check you're not expecting, but this is literally my case. I got a check that I was not expecting. It turned out from a job I had a long time ago, I set up an account, and they just went ahead and sent me the check for it. All this time, I had this, this check, this blessing, sitting on my dresser, but I thought that the note contained condemnation when it was actually a blessing to bring me to another place in my life. And I, I truly believe that there's many times in our lives that, that we believe that the message that God has for us is that you're a sinner, you haven't done good enough, you got an abortion, you're broken, and that's not the message at all. The message is, I love for you, I so loved you that I died so that you can have rightful place in my life. I want you to understand that the message that God has for you is a message of inclusion to let you know that while we were yet sinners, Christ died on the cross. He included you when he went to the cross. That, that, powerful, that powerful message. You see, when that message got a hold of my main man, Meth, he found himself in the presence of the king now. And now he's in the presence of the king. He's, he's at this place where he believes that he's about to receive judgment. So he begins to say, listen, I'm, I'm so glad to be here, but, but, but I, I just don't, I don't know how to process this. David says, man, it's all good. I'm going to take care of you, man. I'm going to bless you. I'm going to give you some stuff, some property that your grandfather had, man. It's all good. My, my main man, Mef, says, man, who am I that you would be so kind to a, to a dead dog like me? I, I feel like I need to take pause for a moment and talk to somebody just for a quick second. The problem with my main man, Mef's response is that he began to devalue himself because he related himself to a dead dog. But how can I be a dead dog if I'm made in the image of the son? It's not honoring God when we have self-deprecation and we don't recognize who we truly are. I want to make sure that someone walks out of here knowing that you are a child of God, that you are a daughter of God, that you are a son of God, that you are a man of God. The Bible says that we are kings and priests. It doesn't matter what you've done in your past, but don't allow that to devalue the way that you see yourself. You see yourself as a person who's being interceded for through Christ Jesus. You are a child and an heir to the throne. I want to invite the worship team to come out and join me. What's really fascinating with this story is after David recognizes and brings my main man Meph into the environment, he brings Ziba back in. 
Now, Ziba, who'd been living it up in that environment, he then turns to him and says, hey, man, I know that you've been on vacation for a while. That changes. I need you to get all your stuff, move out, and from this point forward, you are actually going to serve this man with the brokenness. My, how the tables turn. How the very thing that used to point to all of our brokenness, the very thing that used to be a monument to tear us down, now becomes the platform that will serve us. Your past doesn't define you, it develops you. And I don't know what the zebras are in your life that may be telling you that you're not good enough, that may be telling you that the sins in your past are something that you can never get past. But what I want to let you know, you have to look past your past and to get into God's presence and recognize that God's going to use that very same thing to give you influence in the lives of other people that may be where you were. But it's important for us to respond to the message. The last line of the story is something that I call a shift in the narrative because what happens here is we're told that now everything is right with the world. My main man, Meph, had been retrieved from this place of hopelessness brought back into the place where he's sitting at the king's table. But verse 13 makes a very interesting shift in the, in the narrative, and it says that, and everything is good. My main man, Meph, sat at the table with the king, and his legs were broken, or his legs were lame, depending on which translation that you read it in. Now, for me, that seems very counterproductive. For us to go on this journey, for us to see this man who was broken, who was then restored, brought back into an environment of being made whole, only for us in the very last verse to be reminded of his brokenness. It seems that we should just move on, but I think the Bible had a very important principle that it wanted to make sure that we understood, and that was your brokenness is welcome at the table because grace is on the menu. It doesn't matter what it is that you're carrying. God's not looking for perfect people. He's just looking for people to serve a perfect Savior. So even in spite of your struggle, even in spite of your setback, it is welcome at the table because grace is on the menu. With every head bowed and with every eye closed, I just want to ask you a couple of questions. Maybe you're in here right now and maybe you're in a low to bar moment where you've taken your brokenness to a place where there's no hope, no, no goal or no vision or view of how you can move forward. And maybe even through the messages that you've heard, the prompting that you've heard about you getting involved in Serve Day, the prompting that you've heard with you getting involved in the growth track, you're thinking to yourself, man, if I really respond to this message, people are gonna learn about my past, people are gonna learn about my brokenness, and I'm not gonna be wanted anymore. But I, I wanna end this message with this story. Several years ago when we first moved into this facility, I remember that as we were all getting comfortable with this facility that I had my son with me, my youngest son. He was probably about nine at the time. So he's just kind of running around like staff kids often do. And so we were like in our service and I told him, hey, just go in the back and you can play some video games and I'll catch up with you in a little bit. Well, as the night was coming to a close, I began to look for my son and he wasn't where I told him to be at. And as I began to look, one minute turned to three minutes, three minutes turned to five minutes, five minutes turned to seven minutes, seven minutes turned to 10 minutes. And now I'm frantically looking for where my son is. I don't, I don't know where he's at. He's not where I told him to be at. And at this point, I'm, I'm, I'm dealing with some emotional turmoil. If I, if I can be honest with you, I'm, I'm, I'm being, I'm, I'm very afraid. I'm thinking like, man, did, did someone really come into this church and, and take my son? I'm beginning to process, what does this look like? Pastor Stovall was in the middle of preaching, but I was about to come up and interrupt him like Kanye. Like, hey man, you can finish in a minute. But does anybody see my son? I, I hope I don't get fired, but I need to find my boy. Does anybody know where my son is? Thank God I didn't come to that and I'm on this platform today. But nonetheless, I remember, I remember 
the emotion and the angst. 10 minutes turn to 15 minutes, 15 minutes turn to 18 minutes, and now security's involved. They're all looking around, hoping and helping me to find my son, and I'm like, I don't, I don't know where he's at, and I'm beginning this process, like, man, what, what will my life really look like if I, if I lose my child? What will really happen if, if I, like, how do I explain this to his mom? Like, I'm beginning to process all these emotions in, 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 in one moment. As I turn a corner, I see my son just sitting on the side, and I'm like, dude, like, where you been at? And he was like, I've been sitting here the whole time. I saw you walk by me like eight times and I don't know how you missed me. <laughs> he, he had been sitting right there and even though I, he wasn't where I told him to be at, you would think after the emotional turmoil that I went through that my reaction would be one of anger and frustration. But I, if I could be honest with you, I was, just, I was just glad that he was home. I was just glad that he was found in the house of God and that he was safe. I believe that many of us have a wrong interpretation of God the Father. We're thinking that, yeah, we may have been lost, maybe we're not where God told us to be yet, and we're thinking that if we actually do respond to the calling and we respond to the message of the gospel, that God's gonna shower down anger and judgment and frustration. But what I wanna let you know is that he's gonna radically embrace you because he's just so glad that you came home and that you're found in the house of God. My question to you is this. Maybe you're in here today and Maybe the voice of Zeba has been speaking to you for quite some time and it's been keeping you paralyzed, keeping you from walking by faith, keeping you from really stepping out into what your potential in the kingdom of God could possibly be. What I wanna do is I wanna pray for you where you are. If that's you and you just need a fresh encounter with the grace of God, I'm not gonna ask you to come up, but I wanna pray for you where you are. If you just need a fresh dose of the grace of God so that we can silence the voice of condemnation, I want you to signify boldly by raising your hand on the count of three. One, two, three, put them up. Amen, amen. God bless you guys. You can, you can put those hands down. My, my second question is for this other group of people that maybe you're in a low to bar season, that you're away from the kingdom and, and you're afraid that if you respond to this message that the king is gonna judge you when the opposite is actually the truth. If you're away from God, whether you have walked away from God, or maybe you never said yes to the message of the gospel, I wanna give you an opportunity to say yes to Jesus today. If you're in here today and you know that God is calling you to respond to this message, I want you to boldly put your hand up on the count of three. One, two, three. Amen, 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 amen. Church, can we put our hands together for people who are responding to the message today? At this time, I wanna invite you all to, to stand on your feet. In just a moment, worship is gonna lead us in worship, but before they do, I wanna pray for everyone, but before I do that, I want us all as a family to pray this prayer together for those who are committing or recommitting their life to Christ. I want us to honor this sacred moment with not a lot of movement, the world's gonna be out there for you, but let's, let's honor what God is doing in here in this moment right now. As a family, I want us all to repeat this prayer after me. Lord Jesus, I give you my life, I believe that you died on the cross and that you rose from the dead. And it's because of that, I am saved, I am healed, I am delivered. Holy Spirit, live inside me. In Jesus' name, amen, amen. Now I wanna pray for you guys.
So if you're comfortable, I want you to lift your hands up and receive what it is that God wants to do in this moment. And the worship's going to come in and we're going to seal it in our hearts. Heavenly Father, God, I thank you so much for your grace. I, I thank you for the anointing. I thank you for the calling over every individual under the sound of my voice. Father, I pray right now in the name of Jesus for a radical encounter with your grace, Father, where the voice of condemnation is silenced, Father. Father, I pray for freedom. I pray for breakthrough. I pray for deliverance, Father. I pray that anything that's not like you, God, that you radically evicted with your Holy Spirit, God. I pray that you visit us in our homes, visit us at work, visit us in our marriages, visit us with our finances, Father, and bring freedom and reconciliation and hope. Father, I pray by the power of the Word of God that is there anybody that's struggling with condemnation, that we bind and rebuke the spirit of Ziba right now in Jesus' name. We replace that monotone voice and we erect the cross and knowing that it is finished, including me, it included them, it included deliverance, it included freedom. So it's in Jesus' name that we reclaim all these things. Amen. Thank you for tuning in to today's podcast. For more information about Celebration Church or to get in touch with us, please visit celebration.org.